good to be back with you. It feels like forever since I've, I've been up here. Um, but uh, glad to be here today to continue our series called More Than Enough. Um, Brock started this a couple of weeks ago. Um, last week talked about hearing more of God's voice. And uh, today the, the word of the day is going to be faith. We are going to be looking at trading in the mediocre um, for, for more. And uh, if somebody could get the lights so I could see your beautiful faces out there, that would be great. And that way the glare off my head won't be as, as bright for you, maybe. Um, faith. Faith is the vehicle for your salvation. Do you know that? It's like, if there's a, if there's a vehicle going to heaven, it's called faith. Like, picture a, a big old bus or a train or whatever your mass transportation, favorite mode of transportation is. That is faith if it's going to heaven. There is no religion train headed to heaven. There's no church train. There's no church attendance that's going to get you there. There's no morality train going to heaven. It's only faith. It's what I read about in Hebrews chapter 11. The confidence that we have in God and the promises He's made to us is the vehicle for your salvation. There is no other way. You can't be good enough. You can't give enough stuff away. You could spend your life in the mission field and if you don't have faith, it's not going to matter. So what is faith? We should wrestle with this until we understand what Jesus is looking for from us when it comes to faith. I'm reminded of a story in Mark chapter 9 where a father has a, has, a, has a son that's possessed of an unclean spirit and he comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, Jesus, if you can, will you have compassion? Will you help us? And Jesus responds to him and says, if I can. Guys, let's settle the question right now. Jesus wants to help us. And He can help us. It's a matter of faith. And so when, when Jesus says this to this guy and he's, he's got this sick child, his immediate response is, I believe Jesus, but help my unbelief. How honest is that? I believe, oh, but help my unbelief. How many of you would say this morning in your own faith life, that's a daily struggle? I believe you, Jesus. I read this word. I believe it, but help me because I, there's parts of me that rise up against it and don't believe. And it's a daily struggle. It's the human condition. The hope is the longer you walk with Jesus and the closer you walk with Him, faith becomes easier. That's why we're supposed to abide in Him. Because apart from Him, we can't do anything. And so, if, if you hear me talk about faith today, but you're not abiding in Jesus, it's a losing battle. Maybe you start today reconnecting with the vine, hanging out with Jesus more, caring more about what Jesus says, and see if faith doesn't start to rise up. The struggle is real, and it's not unique to you. If you're feeling like today, yeah, I'm a, I struggle with faith. I mean, I, I'm okay. You know, mountaintop faith is pretty easy. When everything's going great, it's pretty, pretty easy, but that valley, that walking through the valley of the shadow of death kind of faith, that's a little harder. It's a little harder when you feel like you're the only one. When you feel like the struggle you're facing, Superman's not coming to help. It's, it's all on you and your faith. Guys, that's why we have faith. 
for days like that. We're going to look this morning at one story. Um, we, we told you in this, in this series, we're just going to look at Jesus' stories, okay? And so we're going to look at one story in, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. And this is not an all-inclusive study on faith. There's, I could talk about it forever, and we still would not scratch the surface. And so while this is not all-inclusive, there is something here that got Jesus' attention. And so hopefully it'll get our attention and we can find something that we can start to apply to our own lives. This is the story of the faith of the centurion. And this is what the Word of the Lord says. When he had entered Capernaum, this is Jesus, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. Verse 8, but the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word and open our eyes to what you want us to see. And I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Centurions. This guy's name was not Centurion, although I think that's a cool name. Centurion. Nimrod. It's got a ring to it. Um, Centurion was a Roman soldier, but he was more than a soldier. He was a commanding officer. Picture any Braveheart fans in the room, little William Wallace fans. Um, Roman centurions were that kind of leader. They were on the front line. They were not the kind of people that stood at the back of the line and told other people to charge. They led the charge. And they weren't born into this. They, They earned this position by showing honor and valor on the battlefield. Romans were not heroes to the Jews. They were enemies. They were oppressors. They were the people that had come in and taken over. And so this centurion had a lot of strikes against him if he's going to go talk to Jesus. He was an invader. He was an enemy. He was a Gentile. That's probably the worst thing. To to you and I, that's not a bad word, but to a Jew, Gentiles were like the things that were going to keep the blazes of hell burning. That's all they were good for. They weren't God's chosen people. Unless you're of Jewish descent, all of you are Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. This is very good news that a Gentile can come approach Jesus and can show this saving kind of faith. Centurions were in command of a a hundred men. 
They understood authority. And we're going to find as we look at this that authority is the key to this whole story. But let's, let's, let's tear it apart. Why do we want to look at the faith of this guy? Let me put it this way. Jesus would be the hero of the story, right? Always is. That's the safe answer. Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer. But the second star of this story is not really the centurion. It's the faith of the centurion. How good would it be at the end of our lives if when people stood up at our funeral, they didn't have to make stuff up about us to say that was good? And they really didn't talk too much about, you know, what we did with our life, what our job was, but they talked about our faith. I love those kind of funerals. I'm, I'm not a big funeral guy, but when you can stand up and you can see somebody stand up and talk about someone's faith, and you have no doubt that it was legit, guys, there is no better way to live a life than to have your faith be the star of your funeral. My prayer over all of you is that we would all have that kind of faith, that that kind of faith would rise up in us because it made Jesus marvel. Think about this. The Bible says that all things were created by Jesus, for Jesus, and through Jesus. He was there at the beginning. He's the Word incarnate. He became flesh and He dwelt among us, lived a perfect life, was killed for crimes He never committed, bore our sins, defeated hell in the grave, ascended back into heaven. He did all those things, and yet this centurion's faith amazed him. It's only two times in Scripture you're going to find Jesus being amazed at anything. One time right here, when He's amazed at the faith of a Roman, Gentile, enemy of the Jews. And the second time is in His hometown of Nazareth. You read that, about that in Mark chapter 6. And we, we won't go there and look at it in much detail, but what happens is Jesus goes to his hometown and he starts preaching in the synagogue and people are amazed. They're thinking, where did this guy get his wisdom? And then they realize, wait, we know that kid. That, that's Joseph and Mary's boy. These are his sisters sitting right here. Who does he think he is? And they start trying to explain away what God's doing through Jesus. Jesus looks at this situation and he's blown away. He marvels at their unbelief. So he marveled at the centurion's faith and he marveled at the lack of faith of the people who should know him the best because he grew up there. And then that famous statement of only in his hometown is a prophet without honor. Guys, sometimes the hardest people to live out your faith with or the people that know you the best. And it's not really their fault. It's, it's the human condition. When, when, people, when we can keep people from changing, then we have an excuse not to change ourselves. And so, parents, don't be those kind of parents that if, you're, if your child starts displaying a faith that makes you uncomfortable, don't try to calm them down. Don't try to say, hey, let's take it easy on this. No. That's... that's that's being in Nazareth. Encourage your children to exercise more faith than you ever did. As hard as that is, and I've got four of them, and it, it is a scary thing when my, my daughter Kayla last summer or last spring says, Dad, I want to go to Cambodia and Thailand for the summer. I'm thinking, <laughs> no. It's hard 
when you have to actually put faith into action and you have to be willing to say, okay, God, I trust you. I trust you. Guys, faith is the vehicle for your salvation. Exercise it. Make sure that it's real. Make sure it doesn't come, become some kind of bumper sticker like Christianity where you just go to your favorite verse. If it doesn't get you out of your comfort zone, taking steps towards something that scares you to death, then it's probably not faith. It's just probably not faith. The sad thing about the people in Nazareth is that Jesus still had all the power He ever had, but it says in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, He could do no mighty work there. He couldn't do any miracles there because of their unbelief. There's another story in, in the book of Mark a couple of chapters earlier that's about faith. And some of you could probably relate to this. It's about being caught in a storm. Anybody feel like it's stormy a lot lately? Like every time you turn on the TV, different kind of storm. And we wonder, where are you in this, Jesus? In this particular story in Mark 4, Jesus is asleep in the front of the boat. And they run to Jesus and they wake Him up. And it's not bad to wake Jesus up. But don't wake Jesus up saying, Jesus, don't... Don't you care? He cares. So he, he wakes up. He rebukes the wind and the waves. And then he looks at his disciples who had already seen him do miracle after miracle. And says, he says to them, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Faith was a big deal to Jesus. It was a big deal to him then. It's a big deal to him now. It's the only way to please God. We should take notice. We should make sure that it doesn't become just another church word that we say so much that we don't know what it really means. What does it mean to have faith in something if you're not willing to put weight on that belief? Like all of you came in today and you, you picked a chair and you sat in the chair. And for the most part, probably most of you didn't worry about whether or not the chair was going to hold you, right? Why? Because you have faith in that chair, right? It's, a, it's action. It's not just head knowledge. I've gotten on a lot of airplanes. I've never known how one worked. But I've gotten on it because I trusted it was going to get me where it was going to go. Your relationship with God is the same way. It can't just be a head knowledge. Hebrews 11.6, we read it earlier, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So let's look at this man's faith. And just a, a couple of really simple things, and you're going to think, because I've been swimming in this for a couple of weeks, and I keep, th keep thinking there's got to be more that would make Jesus marvel at this man's faith. But... From what I'm seeing, there's just a couple of things that we know about his faith, and so let's look at those. I'm not going to try to make up anything else, okay? The first thing I want us to get out of the way is there's a lot of things that faith does not require in this story. A lot of things that faith doesn't require. What do you mean, Mark? Well, the first thing is faith doesn't require any kind of religious pedigree. As I already said, this guy was a Gentile. We don't know if he even knew the Scriptures at all. We don't know if he knew exactly who Jesus was. We don't know if he had any in-depth knowledge of God at all. 
If you read Luke's account of this in Luke 7, he gives a little different spin on it. He says that, that this guy wouldn't even approach Jesus on his own. He sent some other people to approach him on his behalf. So none of that... Let's, why do I say there's some things that don't matter? It's because some of you disqualify yourself from having faith because you say, I don't know enough. I haven't been in church enough. Guys, faith doesn't require any of that stuff. It only requires trusting what you know about God to be true. Yeah, we can always learn more and we need to. But stop using your lack of whatever it is for you, the thing that the enemy beats you up with, as an excuse to not have faith, to not take steps of faith. I see like three things here about his faith. I want to talk about those three things and I'm going to be done, okay? First thing is this. I see an incredible amount of humility in this man's faith. Luke Luke's chapter uh, 7 in this story, in Luke 7, 4, it tells us that, that he sent some Jews to approach Jesus. He was friends with some Jews. It, we find out that this guy had actually helped the Jews build their synagogue. And so the Jews come before Jesus and they start pleading with Jesus, this man's worthy because he loves our nation. This man's worthy because he loves our nation. Oh, and he helped us build our synagogue. But see, this guy was so humble that he knew he wasn't worthy. Because as Jesus is going to his house, he sends more friends to stop them and say, no, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Why do, I bring, why, why do I think humility is such a big thing when it comes to faith? I'm not a big fan of the Christmas list. Okay? Especially ones that are posted online. It's, it's just not my thing. It's like, if I want to buy you a gift, Anthony, I'm going to pick it out, okay? Hey, congratulations, by the way. Anthony and Becca are pregnant, too. They're having a baby. They'll find out, uh, they'll find out Friday, right? Find out Friday if it's, uh, if it's a little Becca or a little Anthony. We're going to pray for Rebecca. Anyway. Um, see, because Christmas lists, and if you're a Christmas list person, I know it makes shopping easier. Okay, I get that. I get that. But it kind of takes some of the wonder out of it, okay? It's almost like you're presuming because you put it on the list that you're going to get it, right? Or else you wouldn't put it on the list. I think sometimes our prayer life is like that. Sometimes our faith life is like that. Like we presume that we have rights as children of God. And we do. But is that really a great way to approach God with presumption? See, faith and presumption are not the same thing. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2 tells us, be careful to utter anything before God. Because He's God in heaven and you're here on earth, so let your words be few. Don't just assume you know what God is thinking. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have the right to confidently approach the throne. We do. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may have receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Yeah, confidently go before a Father who loves you, but not proudly. Not with your chest pumped out. and See, there's a difference. Look at James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. This is a, a pretty good picture of how we can 
confidently approach God without presumptively tripping over our own pride. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submission is a beautiful word. Anybody have dog people in the room? You know, when a, a dog, when they, when they, they just kind of, they submit because they want to, not because they're afraid you're going to smack them. It's a beautiful thing. Submit. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Guys, this is not a recipe for a miserable existence with God. It's not talking about every season of your life, but it is talking about this. There's some things in your life that you need to take seriously that you're not taking seriously. It's not my job to tell you what those things are. There's plenty of preachers who will. You can figure that out for yourself, but what are those things? Remember earlier I said, what is it in your faith life that you're really struggling with? Believe in God. Well, it probably has something to do with an area of disobedience in your life that maybe you're not taking as seriously as you should. We have a, one of our we will statements here says we will acknowledge our sin, make war on it, but not be defined by it. Maybe it's time that we stop submitting to our sin and our sin nature and start submitting to the Lord. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Guys, humility is what He's looking for from us. Be willing to admit that you don't have all the answers. And trust in the one who does. Second thing I see about this, this man's faith, it's, it's kind of hidden from me for a while, but it, I kind of finally landed on the fact that his faith was other people-centered. He wasn't asking Jesus to come heal him. That's not a bad thing to do. The lepers had, did it through the Scripture. Blind people came. and the, It's not a bad thing, but this man's faith made Jesus marvel because he asked Jesus for one thing and it wasn't for him. It was for a servant. Slavery is an awful thing. In the history of humanity, I don't know of anything worse. Went to a, to a plantation in, a, in South Carolina a couple of weeks ago and I toured this, this huge... It was a... It was a rice plantation back in the day and it's got these beautiful gardens and you can view the slave quarters. There's four original slave shelters still there and they had a, like an hour-long lecture at this thing. I thought that would be cool to go see it. And so it was kind of like I had the same sick feeling in my stomach that I had when I went to Pearl Harbor and went through the tour at Pearl Harbor and realized there's all these, the people that died there are still there. And then here these, uh, this plantation owner telling the stories of slavery and the people that still generationally, the people whose ancestors lived there and died there, they still work on this plantation. And it was just, it was heartbreaking to, to hear people talked about like property. Um, I didn't enjoy the gardens because of this. Then I had to go tour the plantation house and see how the rich people lived, which really made me sick. It's not a great thing to do on vacation. I wouldn't even recommend it, okay? But 
Why do I say that? It was even worse in ancient Rome. Slaves in ancient Rome weren't people at all. They had no rights at all. And, the, and there's no reason a centurion normally would even notice that the slave was sick. They would just kill it and get another one to take its place. But the centurion saw this person as a person. I think, in part, Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith because he saw people the way Jesus saw people. Because one of the things Jesus said He came to do was to bind up the, the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. And here's a centurion who knows nothing about any of that, yet he comes to Jesus and makes one request. Would you heal my servant? See, he modeled, before Jesus even went to the cross, he modeled what Jesus was going to do for all of us. He was going to set all of us free. He was going to heal all of us. This kind of faith, Jesus didn't see in anyone else in all of his crazy. I told you guys a couple of years ago that I, th- I thought that God's desire for each of you was to be a pipe, not a pond. Not just be a collection point for things. Even faith. Your faith is not for you. It is for you, but it's not just for you. Your faith should flow through you to other people. The centurion's faith played a huge part in this servant being healed. Guys, are there people in your life that are being healed because of your faith? I'm not talking about just physical healing, because this is the deal, guys. All of us are going to die eventually. Do you know that? Unless you're Enoch, okay, or Elijah. I guess there's a couple, okay? But for the most part, no matter how well it goes here, it's going to end in death, physically. There are all kinds of healings other than physical healings that probably have more of an eternal impact. Are you praying for those kind of things? Are you praying that maybe some relationships would be restored? That some addictions would be broken? That that beauty would be made out of ashes? Guys, those, those are faith issues. And the level of your faith has something to say about God's moving in those areas. So, first thing was humility. The second thing I saw was this other-centered mentality. And the third thing, I think, is the big one that I think I struggle with. Um, You might not know this, but I don't like to be told what to do. I struggle with boundaries and you saying you can't step over that line. Because it just makes me want to step over that line. I'm... I'm sure I'm the only person here that struggles with something like this, right? Authority in a democracy gets a bad name because you were born with certain inalienable rights. That's a big word, Colby. I don't, I'm not sure I said it right, but anyway. Inalienable rights. We have rights, right? Yeah, we do. But you know what? You were bought with a price. You're not your own. Lordship. Is Jesus your Lord? Yeah, He is. It doesn't register what that means, right? The Lord's opinion matters much more than mine because He has all the rights. Guys, 
this guy respected and recognized the authority of God. And he didn't even, we don't even know what he knew about God. But he respected it. He said, I too am a man under authority. Why did he come to Jesus with this request? Well, clearly he wanted his, his servant healed, but why did he have to say this stuff about authority? Because if you read the story, he asked Jesus to come heal him, and Jesus says, yes, I'll come. And instead of just saying thank you and waiting for Jesus to actually go to his house and heal him, he, he preemptively stopped Jesus and said, no, Jesus, you don't have to go. I, too, am a man under authority. I have soldiers under me, and I know in my army, if I tell someone, go, they go. And if I say come, they come. And if I say do this, they do it. All you have to do is say the word. Just say the word, Jesus. You don't even have to take a step. That was the faith. That, Jesus, that was the thing that made, blew his mind. I've never seen a faith like that in all of Israel. To just say, all you have to say is the word because I recognize your authority. The authorities is a negative term. I remember being a kid, and I loved baseball. I played baseball all the time. I'd play catch with myself, didn't have anybody to play with, and every once in a while, balls would fly through windows. Not on purpose, but there was this particular time I remember throwing a ball through this old lady's window. And she comes out, and she kind of creeps out to the edge of her yard, and she had a fence in her front yard, and she had a finger about that long. She starts wagging it at me like that. And she says, young man, I got a good mind to call the authorities. I didn't even know what that was. But I just hightailed it home. And forever since then, the authorities is not something that gives me warm, fuzzy feeling. Okay? The authority misplaced can be terrifying, right? I mean, election year, people. I mean, it's, it's just... Fear everywhere because everybody's tr trying to convince everybody that everybody wants to kill everybody. Authority can be frightening when it's misplaced, but when it's in the right hands, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's like I remember packing that minivan all those years, heading back to Texas several times a year, and the kids would get in the back, and they've got their little TV, one little TV. Now everybody's got an iPad that big, you know, but back then it was one little screen. They're all craning their neck. It's on the floor for some reason. But they don't, they're not worried about anything about that trip. We're driving through the night 16 hours, and all they care about when's the next snack break. They just trusted. They just trusted because they trusted who was driving Guys, do we trust in the authority of the one that's driving? That is faith. It's that simple. It really should be that simple for all of us. If we call Jesus Lord and we know this is what He wants us to do, then why do we kick back against it and try to rationalize why we really don't have to take a step of faith? We really don't have to do all the things that He modeled for us. It really should be this simple. He says, go, we go. He says, come, we come. He says, do this, and we do it. That was the idea of authority that this centurion had. And Jesus said, I don't see that kind of faith in anybody else. I love the verse in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. 
And it just says, hold unswervingly to the promises, to the hope that we have, because He who made the promises is faithful. We started this morning by saying, and all your promises are yes and amen. Guys, hold unswervingly to the hope that we have, not because the situation warrants it, not because we'll, we'll ultimately win in the end. It's because He who made this promise is faithful. And even if we don't understand how it's going to work out, we know it will. Guys, walking with Jesus consistently breeds that kind of confidence. There's also a promise that's given to people who live like this. And it's, I've read this before, and I've never just, for some reason this week, it just it landed on me differently. Because I see this as a literal event that will happen one day. And what am I talking about? It's in verses 11 and 12 in, in Matthew chapter 8. Where Jesus, in response to the faith of the centurion, looks around at the people around Him and He says this, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Who are the sons of the kingdom? He's talking about the nation of Israel. The ones who are invited, but they're rejecting Him. Okay, But the first part of that is where you and I come into the story. Many will come from east and west to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is that not cool? I mean, seriously, one day we will recline at that table. And this Abraham guy, Father Abraham that has many sons, he's going to be there. Isaac is going to be there. The one that, that almost got sacrificed. He's going, to, he's going to be there. We'll get to see him face to face. Jacob, that scoundrel who, who, who just tricked Esau out of his birthright and God still loved him for some reason. We're going to ask him how he got away with all that stuff. But you know what else? Jesus is going to be there. There is going to be a day where we get to recline physically at that table. Yeah, we'll have heavenly bodies, but man, that's the hope of faith. See that train that's headed to heaven that faith is the only way to get there? That's where it ends up. Guys, it's worth holding on to. Even when today it doesn't make any sense. I want to close with this. I'm going to ask the band to come on back up. Um, see, one day, people, you won't need faith. You know that? One day you won't. Because one day you'll see. And you don't need faith in heaven. So use it all up now. Okay? But until then, it's pretty important. I have a feeling that there's some people struggling in the room today. And... Uh, God just kind of laid on my heart that this is how He wanted me to close this message. And I'm just going to read the Word of the Lord over you. This is out of 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5. And then the band's going to come back. They're going to, we're going to worship and we'll be done, okay? So I don't know who this is for. If it's for you, it's not from me. It's from someone who knows you. And loves you anyway. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
as we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on the heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may be found not naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Some of the roads that these people are walking, God, are roads that are... uh, that seem like too much to bear. So many days. But I pray for the gift of faith to rise up in them so that they set their eyes on things that are unseen, not the circumstances that's right in front of them. Remind some people in this place what hope feels like. Remind some people what your pleasure on their lives feel like. Let them rage against the sin in their own hearts to the point that faith rises up. And and God, You say that faith, just a little bit, can move a mountain. God, I pray for some mountains to start quaking as You start moving them through the vehicle of our salvation through the faith of your children. We want to worship in response to your word and we want to just recognize out loud that we don't deserve anything. We don't presume anything. You've done enough already. But out of grateful hearts can we live faithful lives in response to your goodness. And that's my prayer. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord.